When it comes to wildlife photography, or for that matter, nature or landscape or aviation photography, one name consistently rises above the rest. And today, he sits down with me, Moose Peterson, on this episode of Behind the Shot. Hi, once again, welcome to Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots from conception to completion, all the stories and challenges that happen in between. And we try and get a better understanding of why they make the choices that they do in any of their imagery. As usual, I'm your host, Steve Brazel. You can always find a blog post associated with any given episode over at the website. It's behindtheshot.tv. You can also always find me at stevebrazel.com. There's links to all my social media there. Before we get into today's episode, I just want to remind you that up until the end of January, I've got a contest running with Red River Paper, our December 6th episode with Carl Eric Vaslag. Carl is a uh, Carl Eric is a student at Santa Monica Photography Education Program, and Red River Paper has an education program where they participate with schools around the country, and we are giving away 10 Red River paper sample packs and one person gets the opportunity to win a custom 13 by 19 print of Carl Eric's picture the one here in front of you from Norway beautiful seascape image if you want to get in on that all the rules all the information are over at the website behindtheshot.tv so that brings us to today's episode I don't know how to start by introducing today's guest he is in my mind a legend I'd like to welcome Moose Peterson to the show how are you sir well, thank you, Steve, and uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. It, it's my pleasure. We we talked a little bit in the green room, and actually I had a misstart here on, on the show, so we started over. And in the first time I did this, I did say something to you I want to repeat now that we're going to get this on, on film, as it were. Okay. I learn more, I think, quite often from people who don't shoot my genre, right? You're, you're a nature and wildlife and landscape photographer and aviation photographer, which I want to get into because I had a friend of mine who's a, a aviation photographer on a while ago. I'm a live music photographer, yet watching how people like you capture light, right? And, 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 and deal with composition in a completely different genre teaches me a lot about how I shoot. And you've got a quote in your bio. Your lifelong passion is, this makes me smile. Your lifelong passion is photographing the life history of our endangered wildlife and wild places. Could you explain that to me? Well, I'm a third generation Californian and in just my years, I've seen a lot disappear. Uh, in my files, I have seven extinct species. I mean, they're one place you're gonna see them are in my files. So I never really wanted on my watch the they hear that the things have disappeared and Californians alone citizens of the world can't see what's part of their wild heritage. And in the process of photographing critters, it's been a full-time task to photograph them. One single portrait doesn't tell their story just like it does it for a person. You know, it's interesting because you posted a picture today, the day that we're recording this of a road runner. Yeah. So speaking of critters, uh, and it's the cutest thing. I got to be honest. It's not what I why what I expected a roadrunner to look like in, in a photograph. But you you managed to capture these critters, as you call them, with such detail. When you look back at these pictures, where you have, as you say, you know, members of the animal species that don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. Where does that lead you as you move forward to try and and tell their story? 
Well, no matter what the subject happens to be, I think it's responsibility of all photographers and the, the actual calling of photography itself to share your photographs. I mean, I'm not a coin collector. I don't take pictures to stick them on hard drive. And right, right. There they sit. They're meant to get out. So telling the story is a vital part of it. Now, that Roadrunner picture, like you mentioned. It, it really uh, is the story. cutest thing. Well, what it's doing is it, it ran up on this hill in front of, on the sun because there's a bunch of ants there. The ants crawl up into it. And the ants go through, they clean the lice out of its feather. It's called anting. So that's it's, it's, what you said that. And I'm like, I don't understand what that means. You know, so it's, it's basic biology. Now, uh, one of the things that, you know, I do with my photography is first, as you mentioned, light is everything. Light is what grabs your attention, moves your eye through the frame, tells the story. But you have to be able to, to know the story to tell it. So whether it's critters or a landscape or an aircraft, understanding that story or the back end to me is essential in telling the story. And then getting it out there, getting people, you know, pique their interest to make them stop and look, you know, that's the that's the role of light. If you've done it correctly, it not only tells the story, but grabs the heartstring and reels the person in. So that's really kind of the key. Yeah. And and that kind of is the common thread in your pictures is, again, following you and not being, I'm like the furthest thing from a critter wildlife landscape photographer. I've tried it. I'm just really not good at it. And when I see people with your type of imagery, and it's not just that that genre actually, it's not the wildlife landscape alone. It's really kind of a thread through all your stuff, your aviation stuff too. Is your use of light really it tells a story in a way that pulls the viewer in. And I'm curious with the aviation photography, because your background obviously is the wildlife and, and the nature stuff, right? Landscape. Um, what, what led to the aviation wing of this? It wasn't like, I mean, it's like anything in my life. It wasn't like I said, oh, I'm going to go do this. And I went and did it. It's just the way life unfolded. Uh, with aviation, uh, first, it's my father was in the Air Force, World War II in Korea. Oh, so I here. already, so I was already like, you know, he was in a B-29, heard the story. So he and his, back then his buddies, which I didn't realize, you know, World War II vets would tell stories and that implanted itself somewhere in my subconscious. So when I had the opportunity back when the D-3 was first released to go up and volunteer to work in the Nikon booth of the, the, the Reno air races, it just all clicked for me. You know, it's uh you got an aircraft that's 50 feet away doing 400 miles an hour. And I was shooting with a, a 500 F4 and a D3. Uh, you know, the adrenaline gets pumping. The success for me was relatively easy because it's panning. Uh, panning is something I, I practice every day. I do for 40 years. So panning's not a challenge. So getting the shot then was bringing uh, an emotional response to a piece of metal that is moving yet I'm shooting in a still photograph. So all that came together. Yeah, and, and actually you just said something, because my dad, my dad flew uh, P-40s and P-51Ds. And he used to go to the air races up in Reno. Okay. And if you understand some of the planes that you'll see in those air races, that's one thing. But if you're just going as a spectator and you don't understand their history, that's that to me is where still photography, not video comes in. You can you can give you can give an emotion almost 
to that aircraft, to the history of that aircraft. And I think you carry that through, which is why you've got the accolades that you do. You're a Nikon Ambassador USA. You're a recipient of the John Muir Conservation Award. You're a research associate with the Endangered Species Recovery Act. And this one was interesting to me. You're the creative producer and photographer of a film you do, uh, Warbirds and the Men Who Flew Them. So, you know, with all of that background, obviously you then end up 143 magazines worldwide. You've authored 29 books? Yep. And what's the latest yeah. book? Uh, the latest one that hit the shelf was Takeoff, uh, which is my first book on aviation photography. And what's your, if, if you were to pick the most successful book and whatever how you want to determine success, it could be the most sales, it could be the book you're most proud of. What, what to you is the most successful book? It would be Capture or Takeoff, one of the others, the last couple books, because, uh, you know, the one thing that photographers don't realize, and I don't think you're supposed to, but you have to put in a bunch of time. And with that time comes yeah. wisdom. And that wisdom is more than what F-stop to use or where to place a light. So those two books, I think more of the, the getting older and that wisdom comes from that age is in that book than anything previously. Yeah. The, the um, again, people, if you haven't seen Moose's work, you got to go check out his social media sites and they're up on screen throughout this show or check out his website. And you've got a lot of websites actually, which we'll get into as well, but let's get into this image here because, and I did not pick this because of your name, which somebody's going to say that I did. We looked and we went back and forth through some of your shots and, mm -hmm. and your landscape imagery is just like, I think I made the comment to you. It made me feel like I was there and wish that I was there on some of your landscape shots. And on and shots the like the one that we're talking about today that's in front of us here, the, these mm -hmm. two moose, this makes me feel like I am standing in these hills. Where is this, by the way? It's in the backcountry behind Anchorage, Alaska. Okay. The reason to me, there, there's a three-dimensional light capture in this image. And... I kind of want to dive into that, but let's for there's always people that I have a video feed of this show and I have an audio feed and some people are on the audio feed. So let me just describe the shot to him really quick. You're in the Alaskan wilderness. You've got two moose walking from frame left to frame right back foot up on one of them. You got catch lights in the eyes. I mean, the light in this, it tells you the mood of the day, the time of the day. It's amazing. What's the technical background to this? What's the EXIF data? Well, um, the first thing, keep in mind that it was shot in October. So the sun is low to the horizon the whole day uh, in a big valley. It's overcast light. So let me um, let me and, interrupt you then. Yeah. When you go to this spot, do you uh -huh. know the sun's going to be low all day? Oh, yeah. So you're that's part of your pre-planning? Yeah, I, there's there is probably very little I lead to chance anymore. Uh, you know, time is the most precious thing. People think it's money, um, but it's the time. And if I'm going to be in the field, I want to make sure that every moment I'm in the field, I have given myself the best chance to be lucky. So yeah, all that is part of it. As far as the timing, so comes down to moose biology, right? The 
you know, uh, my uh, northern cousins, what they're up to is is that birds and the bird th- birds and the bee thing. And in that process, they've gathered up the harems. They sit there and, as best as they can, defend them. And then, of course, they are procreating for the next generation. And in that process, you know, they're dealing with the wolves, the grizzly bears, fat reserves, a whole lot of things are happening. So you have to kind of meld in that situation and let it unfold. You can't push it uh, for so many reasons. Uh, but most importantly, I mean, no photograph is worth sacrificing the welfare of a subject. Right, right. They have to be able, they have to be able to do their thing. So next year they're still here on the planet. And I'm just a very fortunate witness with my camera to bring that back. Which, which so camera this, was this? Oh, the Nikon D5, still my principal body. Okay, so D5, what lens is on here? Uh, the lens is, <laughs> you go to my blog, you'll find that it's a lens I said I'd never own. Uh, now I can't part with it. That's the the new 180 to 400 Nikkor zoom that has a built-in 1.4. Uh, it is just uh, a spectacular lens. And part of what you're seeing in that image is because of that lens. Okay, so part of it. I, I got to yeah, dive, go dive into that one. So uh-huh. it, it's got the teleconverter built in. The EXIF data showed this at 560 millimeters, which makes sense with the teleconverter. Right, 400 mm-hmm. zoomed out. Yeah, five, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, F6. Yep, wide open. 250th of a second seems slow <laughs> at that focal length. Oh, no, that's plenty fast. What Are you you're a tripod or monopod or... Well, since I'm basically up there from sunrise to sunset, it's on a tripod or else my arms start getting just worn out. On a big gimbal right. head? Yeah, on a Zanelli head. Okay. ISO is 800. Yep. And it showed, the exit data showed manual white balance set to cloudy. Yep. You made the comment, this was a lens you, you said you would never want to own and now you can't live without it. Yeah. What changed? All right, so back up a tad. When anything new comes out gear-wise, one of the things I'll do, especially for lenses, I'll look to see that focal length, how much do I use it? So it's easy going to bridge, open up a folder, and it shows me all the different lenses I've used and how many times. So the 200 or 400 was already my camera bag. Uh, 200 or 400 is an F4. It's a beautiful lens, does a great job. And if you look at on graph, it's slowly going down in use. I'm not using it as much as I had. And that's partly because of my projects that I'm, I'm selecting to work with. So the lens was announced and I'm like, okay, it's a hefty price tag, right? So right. I'm at to sell a lot of images to pay for that, that lens. And that's how, you know, I'm a business guy. And basically for every dollar you spend, you have to earn five. That's just the basic formula. So it's a lot of money that lens is going to have to earn for me. Okay, so that's part of the calculation. Next, what problems will it solve? Well, I really didn't have that answer until the lens showed up. And it came in, probably I got it like the end of May, I want to say. At which point the chipmunks here at the, on the property, they were in love. And so they are doing what they do. They're all over the place, you know talking to each other and they talk with their tails just going like crazy and they come up and they do their little you know kiss the each other and they're doing their thing and i'm lying on the ground and with a flick of a switch i could go from 400 to 560 so rather than having because i'm laying on the ground i got a platypod 
got my VA55 head. So rather than take my body off, haul the camera from going in the dirt, connect to telecover, put her back on, I just did this. I'm like, wow. And then I'm looking at the impact that I'm not having on my subject because they don't see me moving around to change a teleconverter because they don't know what I'm doing. Right, I'm right. just still there. It was like, wow, again. And then I, my usuals, whenever I get anything new, but software or, or, or gear, I make 24 by 30 prints. So I made 24 by 30 prints, and then I took sections of that to make what would have been a four-foot four by six-foot print. I looked at the image quality, and I'm like, this thing really solves problems. So it so sold it, took, it literally sold itself to you. Well, yeah, it solved problems that there was no other tool to do. Um, and I'm so far in the six months I've had or seven months, it's earned half its keep back. So it's 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 producing images that are are making, you know, sales. So I can't ask for more from a piece of lens. And then back to that moose picture, all right, uh, with that overcast light. So it's not a heavy overcast, it's not a light overcast. It's what I call saturated overcast. It's just a beautiful saturated light. And between that light, the tonal co colors in the in the habitat, which give you that total contrast, which lets you you know, move the elements around. And then the incredible sharpness of that lens, that combination, those three things produce the images that you saw and a whole lot more that to me were just one of my best moose trips ever in, in three decades of, of chasing them up there. And, and one, you know, you, you talked about the sharpness. There is, I, I feel bad for people that they're not gonna be able to see this in, in a video podcast. You need to go to his website to see it, the detail that's in these moose, right? Wide open. Oh my God. When I mean, it's wide open, yeah. The, the, the hairs, you can see a catch light in their eyes. It is, it is in, now part of that obviously is also the body that you're using is top of the line Nikon body. But when you're shooting a shot like this, how close are you right here or how close can you get? Well, so to back up one second. So what's going on in that photograph? Um, a couple of the big bulls. The one bull is a, probably about a 55, 56 inch. The other one's probably below 40 inches. They were walking up through the habitat and they were giving themselves salutations at the same time saying, okay, uh, I'm a big badass. And the other one's saying, yeah, I'm a big badass. And so what they're doing is they walk up really slow. And they sit there and they take their heads and they just go like this very slowly. So what you see in the frame is at the moment when they both have their head going one direction. And what they're doing is they're showing off the size of the canoes. And it's all part of the uh, psychological jousting they do to say, hey, I'm the big bad guy. This is my little piece of the marsh. You know, do you want to be here? You're going to have to deal with me. So that's part of the whole process going on. So to let that unfold, I have to be back away. So I'm probably in that shot, I'm gonna say I'm gonna 35, 40 yards. Okay, so now, you're, you're a chunk away, which obviously explains the, the focal length that you, are, are you wide open or are you hiding in something or? Oh, it's just me, there's no hiding. Um, they don't, they, do they notice you? They have to, but noticing me and caring about me are two different things. 
right? Right, okay. right. You can, so for example, while this is going on, literally there's a grizzly bear on the hill beside, behind us walking across the hill. They weren't caring about him either. So it depends on uh, the way the threat is presented. If it is presented, they're going to get upset or not upset, right? So, for example, if I later on that that afternoon uh, I grabbed a Z7 with a 24 to 70 and walked up probably within 20 feet, a little bit less. And they saw me walking up, so I'm standing up normal height. And then I, I laid down the ground to shoot up on them. Because, so you know, you want to shoot up on the big game to make them look more majestic. And then I laid down on the ground, and, and they didn't care that I laid down. They didn't care that I stood up because as I came up to them, they saw it was the same person, same uh, object. I don't know. They, they know we're people. And, and so I had not presented any threat to them for the past 10 hours it's not going to happen then right and I, I, and big game that you know that big muzzle uh they can smell very well they can smell smell things like gunpowder stuff like that um so i didn't have any of those smells i didn't have any body action that would that would alarm them so then they know they could kick it out of me so they have the knowledge that you know they could do me in so all that combined yeah they just don't care interesting really so that you know your mic level is kind of going up and down i'm not sure why but if it's position maybe uh i can always fix it in post too um so here's a question for you on the composition of this they're okay. coming left to right when 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 you went to this location uh-huh i'm assuming you know in advance they're going to come from that side you you have no clue did you did you even know they'd walk through here or was this a crapshoot? Uh, so I know they're going to be in the valley. Uh, they've been in that valley for decades and decades and decades. It's not like that's not a that's a given. All right. OK. Um, it's it's sex driven. Right. So wherever the cows happen to to wander and wherever it happens to be a cow that moans. In, and I'm not going to try to imitate it, but a suggestive moan that tells them they're receptive. Then the bulls kind of go, yeah, I'm going over there. Okay. Okay. So you, we, I pick an OP where I can watch what's going on and, and they're just burning calories like crazy. Uh, the moose are just burning calories. So they probably are down, laying down, sleeping four to five hours out of the day we have. You know, they're active when we first get there. So we get to see where they bed down. We watch where they bed down. Then we watch them for hours. So we literally take chairs with us up there. We sit at the chairs. We, we're just we're just camped as well, looking left and right, watching what's going on. Uh, I have my beautiful bride, Sharon, with me, who's got great eyes, who's uh, is watching and telling me what she's seeing as well. And then we watch the bulls get up, at which point, they kind of browse, they drink a little bit, and those those big antlers, you know, that's a that's literally a big radar dish. And you watch their ears, their ears are constantly turning because they're listening to the moans of the cows right. to see who are receptive. And then based on what they think they're hearing, they act. So you, uh, 
you know, the biologists I've worked with for all these decades have said, I've got the do little factor, whatever it is. I, 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 I see the sign. I see the, the biology unfolding. I watch what's going on. I, I connect the dots. So I tend more often than not to be in the right place at the right time with what I call planned luck. When one of the things I love about this image is the composition. They've got the nose room in front of them. They're, they're, you know, they're into the scene in such a way that it really, it's not just the landscape nature of it that makes it feel like you're there. It's, it's the position of the subjects in the frame that makes you feel like, like I'm, I'm doing this on a video podcast. It makes no sense. Like, like, you know what I mean though? Like you can breathe that, that air. When you're shooting like this, are you just shooting wide or are you trying to compose in camera? I arrange all the elements every time I push the button. There's no hit or miss or guess. It's not uh, luck. It is, I'm arranging the elements based on that. And the one thing that um, if you were to shoot with me that most people are surprised and shoot with me is the times I don't take a picture. They see things, they go, that's to be a picture. And why, why, you know, am I not shooting? That's because what I'm seeing the viewfinder is not a story. It's not a photograph. Um, you, you kind of touched on, touch on it earlier. I don't want to take pictures that says I was here. Okay. I need to take pictures that say okay. you need to be here. Um, and that part of that fine line is knowing when not to take the picture. And that, I don't want to say discipline, but not taking that picture means that your mind is ready for when the picture does happen and the camera's ready for when the picture's ready to happen. And, and the, then the photograph happens. And lucky for me that those things come out and the response you have to that photograph means that at that moment, I was successful in that storytelling. Okay, and that, that makes a ton of sense. Now, when you go out shooting, what time of day is, is this shot? Uh, it's probably close to about about 4 p.m. because the light's gone around 4.20, 4.30. Okay, but you said that the sun is low in the horizon all day long, but in a normal situation to shoot the type of wildlife that you do, do you only try to shoot dawn dusk? Or, I mean, if you do you go out at 12 noon? The critters don't know anything about photography. They don't really care about harsh shadows, right, that kind right. of stuff. They just do their thing. So they're doing their thing. I'm not doing my thing. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That makes total sense. So for, for your normal workflow, mm -hmm. you get back from a, a shoot, you've gone to Alaska, whatever the case, you come back, you sit down in front of your machine. What is your normal workflow for importing your images, culling your images and editing? Okay. So it's almost all the same, but one thing for critters, they never see Photoshop. What you see is what I shot. And none Interesting. Of my why, why is that? I work with biologists. What I collect is data, even though it's anecdotal. So you treat it journalistically? Uh, scientifically. Okay. Like I was, I've been trained, which is not the same for my landscape or aviation work. But uh, the workflow is pretty simple. Uh, the card comes into photo mechanic. Images are ingested. There they are. Okay. And literally as fast as I click, I go through them. If it's sharp, it's kept. If it's out of focus, it's deleted. And that's it. And I go through them that fast. Um, in that process, there'll be pictures I, that I, I'll tag because I like them. Um, and other than that, I go through them as fast as I can. Uh, uh, 
an average day shoot for me is probably four to six thousand images. Really? Yeah. Okay, so see, and I'm a photo mechanic user. Photo mechanic changed my entire workflow just on its speed alone, because yep. you literally can go arrow, 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 one, one. It, it if you haven't used photo mechanic, people seriously just, and you just miss their once a year sale too. By the way, um, so you go through as fast as you can. You do that. Then do you bring yep. them into a Lightroom or? I don't use Lightroom. No. So those images that I want to finish, and I use that word very distinctly because I'm not into fixed mode. Fixed mode, you don't see my pictures are in fixed mode. Okay. I finish them. So for critters, it's no big deal. Um, uh, I'm using Adobe Camera Raw. So all I do in, in Photo Mechanic is Command E. It comes into Adobe Camera Raw. I click Open, and I save it. I'm done. And you do all the edit in Camera Raw. All the cameras, all the editing is done in the camera. So camera raw really is just your export mechanism. I mean, because I'm assuming like like on this shot, you, oh, you had yeah. on this shot, you had a manual white balance set to cloudy. But I'm assuming as in journalistic integrity situations, your journalist, your, your scientific integrity situation, you still can color correct. But I did in the camera. By just doing the white balance. So here's the thing that photographers have forgotten, right? So we're still dealing with a computer. Right. Even though it's in a black box, it's still a computer. And the computer is meant to deal with math. That's its job. That's why we invented computers. They do that incredibly well. At the same time, they, they, they want data, right? They want all the data possible. And the more data they have, the better they work, the faster they work, and the better the results. See with me so far? Gotcha. So what's going to have more data when it comes to that photograph? What the camera collects or what the computer has? The, the original RAW file. Right. The camera is the thing that's going to collect the most data. So if you get it right there, you don't do anything in, or minimize what you're going to do in post. Okay. So I'm really old-fashioned. I'm really old in my photographic ways and my traditions. Photography is a craftsmanship kind of proposition where you have the right tools that you you assemble and put together and you go click and it should be done and uh when it comes to my critters uh that has been reinforced with all the work that i do with researchers biologists who look at that photograph and they're gonna make judgment calls from it they don't understand kelvin temperature they don't know about okay. exposure compensation so if the color is essential birds and, and little things like that I'm going to use flash because it's 5,500 Kelvin. Boom. It's a done deal. And that's It's going to register the most accurate color we can for that device. Now, it's not the same with landscape work or aviation work where uh, I'm going to sit there and make up for some of the deficiencies in that camera. Uh, but when it comes to critters, what you see is what I shot. And the thing that really torques people's minds is I don't crop and post. What you really? see is what I saw. Yeah. Okay, what Again, about, okay, all right. So okay. you got to realize that when I started, when my first 20 years of this business, I shot film, 35 millimeter film. Right. And it doesn't take more than one photo buyer. If you take a slide and you put all this little silver tape on it, so you see on your slide, this little thing like this, rather than the whole slide, that photo buyer going, what? You couldn't get it right in the camera? And then no paycheck. So 
you know, they don't, it's hard for people to understand that incentive called money. And when you have a, a page of 20 slides and on that page, you have a bunch of silver tape because you couldn't get it right in the camera, that impression, when they open up your FedEx box and they see that, that impression is not favorable, right? It's just that drive to be a professional, to put my best foot forward is what I still have today with digital. So I arrange the elements in the viewfinder. That way I'm gonna get the best possible shot with the best possible quality right off the bat. So when I send that file to my client, they have confidence that they know that the guy they're working with cares So anything else. But, but, devil's advocate yeah. here, uh -huh. digital isn't film, right? So in digital, you do have Based on the way digital processing works, you do have in a raw file a lack of sharpness, for example. Um, mm -hmm. You have a very flat image. So are you shooting JPEG and doing the sharpening there, or do you do some default sharpening of a raw file? Okay, so when do you sharpen a, a digital file? Because it's only going to be sharpened once. When is it? Well, some people would argue it's three times because you have your pre-sharpening, you have your edit sharpening, and you have your print only sharpening. Only sharpen a pixel once. When is it? I would say that you're going to do it on the raw file at the beginning in With the camera. The lens. That's the only time you can sharpen a pixel. Now, after that, you can trick the mind by putting black edges here and there, which is okay, what Unsharpened and other things done, but you're not sharpening a pixel. You're screwing with the mind. So getting it sharp in the camera, it's what I do. It's what well, I've always yeah, done. Yeah, you do it really well, my friend. You do it amazingly well. So Okay, so... All those things are true and understand that I don't hold anybody to my standards, okay? But understand that when your image and my image hits that photo buyer's desk and mine's come out of the camera the way it has and the other one might have been dealt with in post to get the cropping and the sharpness, which one's going to fall apart on the press and which one's not? And who's going right. to have that photo buyer call them again next week saying, I want more of your pictures? Right. That's why I'm still here after 40 years. Yeah, and and amazingly so, good at it. So you you did you. mention, though, that your landscape and your aviation stuff, you will edit in a Photoshop or something. In fact, oh, in the yeah. Kelby one 12 Days of Christmas, some of your Nick recipes were in there, which I have yep. not opened yet. I need to do so. I downloaded them, though. Um, so obviously, you do use Nick, which is still one of my favorite, and I, I repurchased it when DxO bought it. Um, your basic workflow is Photoshop when you're working on an aviation or landscape image? It comes in through Adobe Camera Raw and probably 99% of what I'm gonna do will be in Adobe Camera Raw. And the last thing in Photoshop will be Kiss It With Nick. Um, since Pro Contrast is something that came out of my mind way back when, when it was in San Diego, you know, that Pro Contrast something I use Your response? Okay, so then I have That's to say thank them. you. And I've said this on multiple shows before. The one thing I love, I mean, there's a bunch. I love color effects, the suite, and I, and I love silver effects. But the one plugin that I will go to thinking, you know what, that's pretty much done, but let's just go play and see. And I'll pull it up and I'll use Pro Contrast and realize, oh, it wasn't done. <laughs> that I was part of the team on Pro Contrast, yeah. Oh my gosh, man. Mm -hmm. And Tonal Contrast, both of those. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's it's... If you have not repurchased DxO's version of Nick software, go do it. Just for the pro contrast alone, it really, it will take an image 
you know what I mean, because you've worked on it. It will take an image that you honestly think is done. And you'll suddenly realize, man, I, I can't see because it obviously was not done. Yeah. If you were to give a tip, there's a lot of people who go out and travel on vacation and they go to the national parks and, you know, try and photograph wildlife. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they don't. Same person, right? To get those hits up higher, to get more successes and less of the misses. What what's your tip? Time. Photographers don't give themselves time. They uh, they put too much pressure on themselves to deliver right now. They uh, worry too much about failure. Where I actually embrace in failure. I don't post my failures, but I do embrace them. I learn from them, and at the same time, realize that no matter what will happen, the sun will come up tomorrow. You can shoot again. Um, wildlife photography is, is a, um, you got to have a passion for it. You got to love what you're doing. You got to love that critter that's, that's, that's sharing its life with you. And you've got to be willing to give yourself a little bit into that whole process and, and, and take a, an emotional stake. And that emotional stake often can hurt, but that's part of the process. So I, I, I need to ask this too, before we finish again, there's a lot of great wildlife photography out there and thank goodness and uh you know rick salmon has made comments to me about what he's looking for for example in 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 a horse image or something for you when you look at wildlife imagery whether it be a a large creature like a moose or a small creature like a roadrunner what is it that you look for and that people when they're culling their images should look for i think i know what the answer is going to be too whether it's critters or landscape or aviation, it's the character. It's, it's, it's their own, you know, personal spark of life. What makes them unique? That has to come through. I love that. You're, I mean, you're so good, man. Uh, I can't say thank you enough for being on the show. Well, Steve, thanks for having me. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been fun. And again, if you want to follow Moose, I've got all of your, your, uh, your info popping up throughout this show, but really quick, you have you have three different websites. Could you explain them? You, you've got moosepeterson.com, warbirdimages.com, and Norman, normandybound.com. Explain the differences in those for me. So moosepeterson.com is the generic website where I put out, you know, there's, there's it's coming up on 4,000 pages of free information. Uh, I have no secrets. I want photographers out there shooting and sharing their stories. There's more than I can ever cover in my lifetime. So I'm depending on everybody else to do it. So that's what that site's about. Um, Warbird Aviation is our aviation business website for working with the uh, aircraft industry. And then normandybound.com, I've been an editorial photographer for my entire life. And um, not that I'm doing less, but we're putting more emphasis in the documentary. And so normandybound.com is the documentary work on right now that uh will finish culminate uh fall of 2019 and it's going to be a two-year project of bringing a world war ii vet aircraft from the swamp flying it over the normandy beaches on june 5th 2019 celebrate our freedoms that that project watching some of the stuff that you do on on your classic uh aviation photography you posted one the other day 
And it was like an old, it wasn't Wright Brothers, but I mean, it was a super old on the runway. Oh, yeah. The old Guardian T3? Yeah. yeah. And again, it's that light. You, It was warm. It was, it, people, you just got to go. I, I can't describe them all day long. You got to go check out his work. Moose, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Steve, thank you so much. Totally enjoyed it. Uh, I look forward to doing it again with you. Uh, I would love to get you on to do one of your, your aviation shots, actually. Anytime. I'm happy to help. That would be an absolute blast. To everybody else, you can follow me at stevebrazel.com. It's like Brazil, but two L's. Or, of course, the podcast, BehindTheShot.tv. If you want to reach out to me on Instagram or Twitter, it's BehindTheShotTV or Steve Brazel. And then, of course, Facebook, it's BehindTheShotPodcast or Steve Brazel Photography. As always, you can go to BehindTheShot.tv. There'll be a blog post associated with this episode. And I'll have a gallery of images from Moose so that you can kind of see more of his work, links to all of his websites and all his social media accounts so that you can follow him on social media as well. And as always, you can always reach out to me if you've got questions on the show. If you've got suggestions, you can also always head up to iTunes and leave a review or a rating. That's always much appreciated because it does help with discovery. Other than that, thanks as always for joining us on Behind the Shot, the show where we try and get inside the mind of great photographers by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. We'll see you next time. Thank you.